Well, good morning. It is great to be with you this morning. It's always uh, a privilege to speak at Grace Assembly of God. Of course, this is uh, my home church. We, I do get to travel quite a bit across our wonderful state, but this is my home church, and not just uh, in these recent years, but uh, I grew up in this church, and my parents were saved in this church back in 1979, and uh, spent many years uh, hiding in the back in many different places in this building, and uh, so just have a great love and appreciation. And Pastor Doug, I just thank you for the opportunity to share in this moment. It's a, it's a sacred responsibility, and I'm just so grateful that you've entrusted me with the, this moment today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Gospel of John, chapter 21. Uh, on November 22nd, 2012, the New York Jets took on the New England Patriots in a Thanksgiving evening game. And during that game, as some of you already know where I'm going, during that game, quarterback Mark Sanchez hikes the ball in one particular play and proceeds to run into the backside of one of his offensive linemen, Brandon Moore. He fumbles the ball and it is picked up by a New England Patriots defensive back who runs it in the opposite direction for a touchdown. That play became an instant internet viral sensation going by the hashtag, and many of you know it, it's the butt fumble. <laughs> Have you heard it before, anybody? Any of my guys in the room, you know this play, right? Uh, the butt fumble. It, uh, it was instantly voted by ESPN Sports Center to be the worst of the worst play of the week and it proceeded to win that award for 40 consecutive weeks. In fact, ESPN was so tired of having it be at the top and so embarrassed to have it as the top of their worst of the worst that they retired it after 40 weeks. It never lost. It was undefeated, that play. Uh, Today, the butt fumble has its own Wikipedia page completely (laughs) devoted to all of the details of this one blunderous play. Uh, The uh, NFL has humorously ranked it as the 99th best NFL play of all time. And ESPN went on to do a sports science episode completely dedicated to the physics of what went down in this particular play. And to this day, if you are a football fan and you mention the name Mark Sanchez... The thing that everybody mentions first is the butt fumble. (laughs) And this is, I I feel really bad for the guy. And Mark Sanchez was an incredible quarterback. Coming out of high school, he was the number one recruited quarterback in the country. He played for USC, a prestigious college football program. Played in many big, important college games and then was drafted number five overall in the NFL. And today, he's he's a commentator. And yet today, when we hear his name, we still think of his worst football moment. No one wants to be defined by their worst moment, do they? None of us want to be defined by our worst moment. In fact, um, none of us, I think it's terrifying to think that we could be defined by one embarrassing moment in our lives. I think about uh, one of the first days I was at Bible college, I was in a class, and the teacher was uh, getting to know everybody in the class, and he asked everybody to go around and introduce themselves and say where they're from, and so 
Uh, I didn't really know anybody hardly at the school at the time, and I wanted to make a good impression, so I'm trying to think, okay, Dan, just, you know, be clear, be, be strong, you know, give off a good impression, and I'm, I'm, I feel like something in the back of my throat, and I'm like, clear your throat, get ready for this moment, and he calls on me and says, introduce yourself, and I said, hi, everybody, my name's Dan McLaughlin. <laughs> How I got through the next four years of Bible school without being called squeaky is beyond me. And as I, as I tell these stories this morning, some of you are thinking of your most embarrassing moments, maybe some of your biggest blunders. In fact, I have moments in my life that are much more embarrassing than uh, the ones I've shared with you. In fact, I'm not going to even share those with you because I don't want anybody to know about them any more than I already do. But we've all failed in different ways in our lives, and none of us want to be defined by our worst moment. When we think about failures in our lives, we think that uh, I think about failures in relationships, right? Some of us have failed in relationships. We've, we've said things we didn't mean. In a moment of anger, we end up hurting the ones we love. We've broken promises, not lived up to our word. We've acted in selfishness. We've let down people that we love deeply. But let's take it a step deeper. deeper. I think all of us have failed at some point in our relationship with God. All of us have had moments where we've done things we're not proud of. We've had maybe a sincere devotion at different points in our life, but somehow our love for God and our ability to live for him has fallen short. And so that brings me to the question I want us to wrestle with this morning in this text, and that is, how do, how do we process failure in our walk with Jesus? How do we process failure in our walk with Jesus? And I'm not just talking about general failure in life. I'm not just talking about maybe you tried to get that job promotion but were rejected. Maybe you forgot your anniversary. Maybe you momentarily lost one of your children at Disney World. I'm not saying that happened. Okay, maybe it did. Um, we have eight kids. You're going to lose one eventually. Okay. <laughs> I'm not talking about general failures in life. We all have those. But I'm talking about how do we process the moments when our, our love for Jesus falls woefully short. And this morning I want to look uh, at, at the life and journey of the Apostle Peter and specifically look at the moment that Jesus confronts his greatest failure in John chapter 21. And for those of you who know uh, the New Testament, you know the story of Peter. He was a, a simple fisherman who was called by Jesus to follow him and to be one of his disciples. And very quickly, Peter became one of the most outspoken disciples in terms of his, his, his love and his devotion to Jesus. In fact, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, records for us that it's Peter who is the very first one who acknowledges who Jesus is. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, you're correct. And on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a big moment for Peter. He's the first one to say that. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, tells us that it's Peter who, in the middle of a storm, gets out of a boat and begins to walk on the water towards Jesus. Now, he doesn't do it for very long, and he's certainly not successful in his entire trek of walking across the water, but Peter is the only of the disciples who gets out of the boat, and he's the only one who begins to walk on the water for at least a little bit. 
And so that's to his credit. And at the Last Supper, Peter declares his unending devotion to Jesus. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And later that evening when Jesus is arrested, it's Peter who grabs his sword and starts swinging. And yet despite all this, Peter, perhaps apart from Judas who betrays Jesus, Peter has the greatest blunder of all of the apostles combined. He infamously denies Jesus three times publicly. And this is not insignificant. Earlier, Jesus had said, Jesus said in Matthew 10, he said, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. It's not insignificant. And so, now his last memory of Christ before his death, the last memory he has with the one who he's devoted his entire life to is one where he's pretended as if he doesn't even know him. It's a tough one. And so we come to our passage this morning and just some context for you here. This, now as we read in John chapter 21, this is after the resurrection. Jesus has, we know of at least two appearances he's made to his disciples prior to this, but uh, this is after the resurrection. And Peter, John, and five of the other disciples go fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And there's, many, there's much dispute among commentators as to why uh, they went fishing that particular day. Some say it's because they were running away. Peter was running away from Jesus. Others say it's because they were running away and trying to hide from the authorities during that time. And others say simply that the disciples were hungry and they wanted something to eat. We're not exactly sure why they went fishing at this moment. But John's gospel tells us that they fished all night and they caught nothing. And early in the morning, they look to the shore, and there's some, an individual standing at the shore, and it's Jesus. And they don't recognize that it's Jesus, but he calls out to them, and he says, why don't you try putting your nets on the other side of the boat? And so all of these experienced fishermen decide to take the advice of a random stranger who they're not sure who he even is, and they throw their nets on the other side. And the fish begin to jump into their nets, and their nets become so full of fish that the boat nearly capsizes. When they eventually get to shore, they count the fish, and there's 153 fish in one single catch. And Peter, realizing at the point of this miracle that it's now Jesus on shore, he jumps out of the boat and swims towards Jesus, leaving the rest of the disciples behind to tow in the fish. Nice guy. And as he gets to the beach, Jesus is there, standing next to a fire and cooking breakfast for the disciples. And it's after this breakfast that Jesus begins an intimate conversation with Peter, which we pick up reading here in verse 15. John chapter 21, reading in verse 15. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. 
The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Would you pray with me one more time this morning? Heavenly Father, today we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the person of Jesus. And God, it's my prayer this morning that you would once again reveal to us in a new way the beauty of who Jesus Christ is in our lives. God, we thank you for how Jesus Christ does not leave us in our failures, how you work healing and wholeness in our hearts and in our lives in a way that we could never do on our own, and God, how you redeem even the worst moments in our lives for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray today that as we look through your word, you would give us that clear picture of Jesus once again in your precious name. The first thing I'd like you to notice in this passage this morning is that Jesus pursues us in our failure. Jesus pursues us in our failure. I want you to notice something very important here. Jesus is the one who comes and finds Peter. Jesus is the one who comes and finds Peter. We, we have no record that at any point Peter has made any attempt to find Jesus and confess his sin and to reconcile with the risen Savior. We have no record of that. And you might say, well, well Dan, that's kind of confusing because didn't Peter jump out of the boat and swim to Jesus? He did. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But understand first that Jesus is the one who initiates this interaction. Jesus pursues a restoration of relationship with Peter. Despite the fact that Peter had failed him miserably and publicly, despite the fact that Peter had talked a big game with regard to his devotion, but when it came time, when it mattered most, Peter fell flat on his face. It would be easy for Jesus in this moment to embarrass Peter. It'd be easy in this moment for Jesus to make an example of him and to shame him. It'd be easy in this moment for Jesus to cast Peter aside and say, no, I'm going to find someone else who's more worthy of following me. It'd be easy for Jesus to sit back and say, you know what, I'm just going to wait for Peter to get really, really humble and really, really sad and really, really guilty and really, really full of shame and come groveling back to me. Then maybe I will talk to him. But no, Jesus pursues a restoration of relationship with Peter despite his failure. Jesus makes the first move. Are you with me this morning? Jesus makes the first move. Jesus makes the first move. Jesus reminds Peter that he loves him just as much on this day as he did on the first day they met. In fact, the miracle that he performs here this miracle of the incredible catch of fish, it's actually a repeat miracle. It's, it's the first miracle that he ever performed in front of Peter. 
Peter had gone out. He had fished all night. He came back and he had caught nothing. And Jesus said, Peter, why don't you go back out and try your nets on the other side? And Peter said, I'm, a, I'm an experienced fisherman, Lord. What are you telling me to do? And he says, go back out and try it again. And Peter says, okay. He goes back out and he fishes again on the other side. And his boat nearly capsizes because of the amount of fish that he catches. And what does Peter do? He comes back on shore and he falls at the feet of Jesus and he says, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. And that's an appropriate response because Peter understood how holy and how perfect Jesus was. But in that moment, Jesus calls him anyway. And so when this miracle happens again, Peter instantly recognizes that it's Jesus. And he's reminded of the first day that he met Jesus and the day that Jesus called his name. And he instantly in this moment recognizes something that is so important to our understanding of the gospel and that is this, is that on our, on our best day, we're still not worthy. But on our worst day, he's still pursuing us. On our best day, we're not worthy but on our worst day, he's still pursuing us. On our best day, we should still be saying, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful person. I don't deserve to be around. I don't deserve to be in your presence. Lord, I'm too full of sin. Go away from me. But here Jesus is following the worst moment, the worst failure of Peter's life. And Jesus is saying, by this miracle, he's saying, Peter, I'm still here. I'm still here. I haven't left you. I still love you. I still want a relationship with you. I, I still want to use you in my perfect plan. I still, Peter, I still want you to follow me. And this, this is what's amazing about the message of the gospel. And you've, you've got to understand this this morning. This is what's amazing about the message of the gospel. Before Peter ever jumped out of the boat, he was already forgiven. Before Peter ever jumped out of the boat, Jesus had already paid the price for his worst failure. Before he ever jumped out of the boat. How many of you know, failure does not define God's children. Failure does not define God's children. Jesus' perfect blood does. And in Christ, in Christ, we're not defined by our worst moment. We're defined by his worst moment. And we can look at this interaction of Jesus and Peter and say, oh, isn't it wonderful how Jesus gives Peter a second chance? Don't say amen to that. I want you to hear me this morning. To say that Jesus gave Peter a second chance is to misunderstand the gospel. To say that God is a God of second chances is to somehow assume that if he gives us enough chances that somehow eventually we'll figure it out and get it right. Friends, I want you to understand this morning. Don't run me out here, okay? I want you to understand this morning. God, God is not a God of second chances. God is holy and he is perfect and he is pure and he is just. God is not a God of second chances. He's a God of one chance and a second Adam. The first Adam failed miserably and continued to fail, but the second Adam was the God-made flesh. It is Jesus Christ who came because no matter how many chances mankind could be given, it would never be enough. 
We don't need more second chances. We need a savior. We need a substitute. We need one who will take our place in fulfilling the righteous requirements of God on our behalf. It's Jesus Christ. We need one who would do it once and for all. For those of you that are here that call yourself followers of Jesus Christ, you remember the first day you met Jesus. And when Jesus called your name for the first time, you weren't worthy then. And apart from him today, none of us are worthy now. I don't care how much you've attended church or served in ministry or tithed or gone on mission trips or helped the poor, we are still never worthy in and of ourselves. We never were. We are only worthy because of the perfect sacrifice of the one and only Son of God who took our sin and our failure upon himself so that we might be seen as pure and righteous before a holy God. Before Peter ever jumped out of the boat, he was already forgiven. Jesus had already paid for it. Which brings up a great question, and I've been wrestling with this, with this all week as I've been fighting through this passage. <laughs> if, if, if Peter was so ashamed of his failure, if Peter was so tormented by it, then why did, he, why did he jump out of the boat and begin to swim to Jesus so eagerly? Is he just that ignorant? Did he just not get it? And wouldn't it make more sense if he was ashamed? Wouldn't it make more sense if he was like the last one to come in? hiding in the background, maybe hoping that Jesus would ignore him, maybe, maybe not realize that he's part of that group? Why does Peter jump out of the boat so eagerly? And here's what I think, and again, this is, this is my opinion. I could be wrong. We'll get to heaven, and you can tell me I'm wrong when we get there. That's great. But here's what I think. I think Peter jumped out of the boat so eagerly because he knew Jesus. He knew who Jesus was, and he knew what Jesus was like. And he knew in that moment, because of that miracle, he knew what Jesus was saying and what he was reminding him of. Jesus was saying, Peter, I haven't given up on you. I haven't given up on you. Can I suggest to you this morning that the reason we often run and hide from God in our failures is because we still haven't come to grips with who Jesus Christ is? And when you, when you know who Jesus is, when you understand the heart of God towards his children, when you understand what Jesus bought and paid for with his own blood, you understand that Jesus is the one who pursues us in moments of failure. And so we don't have to run and hide. We can run to him instead. We can, like the author of Hebrews says, approach the throne of grace with confidence. Jesus doesn't sit back and wait for Peter to get his life together before he interacts with him again. He doesn't cast Peter aside until he shapes up. He doesn't pile on guilt and shame. Jesus pursues Peter in his failure. And he's pursuing you too. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've fallen, he's pursuing you. He always has been. The second thing I'd like you to notice in this passage is that Jesus confronts our failure. And yes, I have been made aware that there is a typo on my slide. Yeah, it's there. I'm just gonna acknowledge it. 
I don't think I've had a typo on a slide in a sermon for the last 10 years, and I knew, I knew this morning coming in, I said, God, I'm preaching about failure. What are you gonna do to embarrass me? I'm thankful that it's just a typo. It could have been much worse, so. Uh, there it is, okay? I'm acknowledging the elephant in the room. There it is. Okay, now listen to me, okay? <laughs> Jesus confronts our failure. Jesus confronts our failures. Now, this is such an interesting and difficult text to study because there, there's so much subtext going on here. There's so much being said without it actually being said, but there is universal agreement among, among biblical commentators as to what is actually happening in this interaction between Jesus and Peter on the beach, and Jesus, in a very unique and powerful way, is confronting Peter's failure. Peter has denied Jesus three times, and so Jesus now three times sits with Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? He asks him that same question three times. What's interesting is that John, John's gospel notes that Jesus has made a fire, and they're sitting next to this fire as this conversation happens, and the word that John uses for this fire is not just a generic word for fire. He uses a word in the Greek called anthrakeia, which specifically means a, a fire of burning coals. And you might say, well, why is that significant? It's significant because that word is only used two times in all of Scripture. It's used here in John 21, and it's used in John chapter 18 to describe the very fire that Peter sat next to the night that he betrayed Jesus. And so you can you imagine now, as Peter is sitting near this fire with Jesus, as he's staring into its glow and he's feeling the heat against his face. Can you imagine what memories begin to flood his mind? I'm pretty sure we can have a good picture of what was going through his mind. The memory of that moment, that moment of failing Jesus, not but a few days earlier. In the moment of Jesus' greatest difficulty, Peter abandons him. And he doesn't just, he doesn't just Peter doesn't just run away like some of the other apostles do. Peter stays and tries to be good, and he tries to make a good fight, but in, in the end, he pretends like he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Not once, not twice, but three times. And Luke's gospel actually records for us that at the moment of Peter's third denial of Jesus, Jesus turns and looks directly at Peter. And for Peter, this is the ultimate failure. It's the ultimate regret. And so now he's sitting here with Jesus at the same kind of fire, which is not an accident, being asked three times if his love is true. And friends, it's important. I want you to know this morning, it's important for us to understand that, that Jesus absolutely, unequivocally pursues us in our failures. But I also need you to understand this morning that Jesus confronts our failures as well. He confronts our failures as well. Jesus does not ignore Peter's failure. And while this interaction is subtle within the text, it is loud and clear to Peter. And so what, what is Jesus actually doing here? First, I think it's important for us to understand that, that Jesus is confronting Peter's failure having already forgiven him. We've got to understand that. Jesus is confronting Peter's failure having already forgiven him. He's already paid the price for it. Jesus didn't need to fix Peter's behavior to make him worthy of forgiveness. 
No, Jesus doesn't confront Peter in order to forgive him. He's already done that. Jesus confronts Peter's failure in order to heal his heart. Jesus confronts Peter's failure to heal his heart. He looks deeply into Peter's soul, and he calls out the root issue of Peter's heart. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. But he's confronting, he's confronting Peter. Confrontation's never comfortable, is it? Any of you love confrontation? Anybody? Anybody love confrontation in this room? Okay. If you are, tell us your name. I'll give it to Pastor Doug. That way you know to never nominate you for a board position. Um, just messing with you. Confrontation is almost always uncomfortable. And for those of you that are, that are parents in the room, uh, how, how often do you confront your children about their behavior and their response is, oh, thank you, mom and dad, <laughs> for pointing out the error of my ways. I've been waiting for this moment. It's not usually how it goes, is it? Confrontation in Scripture comes in many forms. In fact, some more harsh than others. I think of uh, the prophet Nathan confronting King David over his sin of murder and adultery, right? It's this, it's this grand prophetic display of truth and judgment. But that's not always God's method. Often we see in Scripture that the level of confrontation needed typically relates to how hard the heart is of the person who needs confronting. Again, parents, you know, sometimes your children need a strong tone and the full use of their Christian name in order to get their attention. And other times you just need to give them a look. And it's all it takes Notice how Jesus approaches Peter's failure here. He doesn't even mention it. He doesn't need to. Peter knows what he did, and he knows that Jesus knows it too. And he knows what Jesus is doing in this moment. Jesus simply asks Peter to tell him what's in his heart. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, I can't hide anything from you. You see everything. You know my heart. You know I love you. But Jesus asked this question three times, and it hurts Peter. It hurts him. Confronting our failures can hurt, can't it? Confronting our failures almost always involves pain. It almost always involves dealing with painful and uncomfortable truth. But I want you to notice here, I want you to notice here how gentle Jesus is with Peter. Jesus, in this moment, and always really, but Jesus in this moment expresses to us the perfect embodiment of grace and truth. In fact, this is how the Apostle John describes Jesus as he opens his gospel. The very first few verses of John's gospel says, Jesus is the one and only Son of God who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And so now John finishes his gospel showing us what that grace and truth actually looks like. Jesus confronts our failures full of grace and truth. But why? Why does he need to confront our failures? I mean, he's already forgiven them, right? Why can't he just let it go? 
Is it, is it because we're unaware of our failures? Not typically, but maybe. Maybe we need to be made aware of them. Or is it more so because the scars of our soul can only be healed and redeemed in the face of perfect grace and truth? See, sometimes, sometimes we need more truth on the front end so that grace actually means something to us. Sometimes uh, uh, grace sometimes uh, means nothing to someone who doesn't know that they need it. But other times we know the truth, we know our failure, we know what we've done, but we need the affirmation that the grace of God is still there for us and still accessible in our time of need. Jesus confronts failure, but he does so with grace and truth. And sometimes it's painful, but it's healing in its motivation. So what, what is the truth that Jesus is bringing here? We know that Jesus is coming full of grace. Peter recognizes that. But what is the truth that Jesus, bring, that Jesus is bringing that causes pain in Peter's heart? What's the true essence of Peter's failure? Well, it's, it's found in the question that Jesus asks. He says, Simon, do you, do you love me? Peter's failure at its core was a failure of love. You might say, well, Dan, that doesn't sound right. Peter seemed like he had his heart in the right place. I mean, isn't he the one who, 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 who loved Jesus so much that he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death? Isn't he the one who, who pulled out his sword and started swinging when Jesus was arrested? It seemed like his heart was in the right place. How is Peter's heart in these moments a failure of love? And I, I agree, I do think Peter's heart was in the right place. But I believe that Peter's faith was not in the work of Jesus, but in himself. Peter's faith was in, in his own love, in his own ability to remain true, in his own strength of devotion. And so the night before Jesus is crucified, Peter grandstands to Jesus. He's, he's making this big display. He's saying, he's saying, Jesus, I have what it takes to be faithful and true to you. And friends, that's not the message of the gospel, is it? The message of the gospel is not, if I have what it takes to be faithful and true, God will accept me. No, the message of the gospel is, Jesus alone is the faithful and true one. Jesus alone makes me worthy of God's acceptance. Jesus is reminding Peter that apart from him, his love will always fall short. But I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that where, that where our love ends is where God's love begins. Jesus confronts Peter's failure full of grace and truth. The final thing I'd like you to notice in this passage, and I'd like to ask the worship team to come and join me here on stage as we, as we get to this. The final thing I'd like you to notice here is that Jesus redeems our failures. Jesus redeems our failures. Notice here that in this moment, Jesus is not only bringing Peter back to the moment of his failure, he's also bringing him back to the moment of his calling. It's not a mistake that Jesus repeats the same miracle on this day as he did on day one. He's reminding Peter of his calling and he's reminding Peter that it wasn't a mistake. 
He's reminding Peter that not only has he given, that not only has he not given up on him, but that his calling on his life hasn't changed. Friends, I'm so grateful that the calling and the purposes of God in our lives don't change because of our failures. Peter was unworthy of Jesus at the beginning. And despite all that he had learned, saw, accomplished, and experienced, he was still unworthy. But here's the thing. Jesus still wanted him. Jesus still wanted him. He says, Peter, feed my sheep. Or Peter, take care of the souls I'm entrusting to you. Another way to say it is, Peter, I still have a ministry for you. Peter, I still have a mission for your life. And this is incredible. And it shows us the heart of God. Friends, how many of you know, God only uses flawed people. Apart from Jesus, God only uses flawed people. Peter was not without his failures then. And in fact, the New Testament records even some more that he made beyond that. It wasn't that he had enough chances that he eventually figured it out. It's not the point. Jesus makes it a point to use flawed and imperfect people in his ultimate purposes. In fact, very often, God will use what appears to be the biggest failure in our lives to motivate and inform his most significant purposes in our lives. I find it incredibly interesting that, that Jesus uses as the primary mouthpiece of the early church, the one person who denied him publicly. Just think about that. Jesus has the power to redeem the worst moments of our lives and turn them into something beautiful, useful, and eternally significant in his kingdom. But I want you to notice something else here. Peter's, Peter's failure is not the only failure in this story. The disciples also failed in their fishing trip. It was a colossal failure. You say, well, why is that important? And I won't go into all the theology behind it, but very briefly, I'll just tell you this. this. This failure to catch fish on their own was a symbol of how they could not be effective ministers without the power of God in their life. It's what Jesus is saying to them. You see, sometimes our failure is a failure of devotion. And other times our failure is a failure of mission. But here's what Jesus is saying. Whether, you're, whether your failure is a failure of devotion, Jesus is saying, you can't be devoted to me apart from me. Your love will always fall short. And you can't be missionally effective without my power working through you. So whether, whether you're trying to be devoted or whether you're trying to be effective, you still need me working in your life. And so now the same words that Jesus said to Peter at the beginning, he says to him at the end, he says, Peter, follow me, follow me. Once again, get up, leave everything and follow me. I know you've fallen short. I know you're gonna continue to fall short in some ways, I know that. But I've already forgiven you. I've already paid the price and I love you, and I'm restoring you continually. Now, Peter, get back up and follow me again. Get back up and follow me again. Tradition tells us that Peter preached the gospel, planted churches, 
all across the known world at that time until his death in 64 AD under the reign of Emperor Nero. Tradition tells us that Peter was slated to be crucified but refused to die in the same manner as his Lord and Savior and requested that instead he be hung upside down. This gives me new perspective when I read the words of Peter, which he wrote years after this moment that we're talking about today. Let me just read to you a small excerpt from Peter's own epistle, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter writes to the church, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Praise God you bear that name. Jesus redeems our failures. Would you stand with me this morning and going to ask our altar team to come and make themselves ready. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we take a moment to respond and as we do I want to make this opportunity to respond very simple. Maybe you're here today and you have never responded to the message of Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you know in your heart that you are far from God. In fact, by the way you've been living, you've been running in the opposite direction. I want you to know this morning that Jesus is not waiting for you to get it together. He's not waiting for you to figure things out and get your life in order before you come to him. Jesus is pursuing you. He's at the door. He's knocking. He's waiting for you to turn and to acknowledge him. This morning, I want to give you that chance. If you have never put your faith and your trust in Jesus, I want you to know you can do that today. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed in this place today, if you're here this morning and you'd like to make that decision to follow Jesus for the first time in your life, or maybe to rededicate your life to him, I want you to give, give you a chance to do that. And can you indicate that by simply lifting up your eyes and looking at me so that we can agree with you in prayer? I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. But I just want to let you know that we're agreeing with you in prayer. And I'm going to start on my right, your left, on this side, and just see if there's any here who would say, yes, that's me. I want to give my life to Jesus for the first time. Amen. Moving here to the next section in the center. Praise you, Jesus. Amen. And now to the center section here, the center right section. Thank you, I see that. Anyone else? Praise God. Now to the far left section, your right. Praise you, Jesus. Now into the back in the overflow. I'm going to give you that opportunity. Right here this morning, right now, you have the opportunity to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. You can right now, simply in your heart, say, Jesus Christ, I come to you. I understand I'm a sinner. 
You see all my failures. You see all my flaws. I come to you needing a savior. Would you come and be the Lord of my life? Scripture tells us that when we do that, God's in, God, God invites us into his family. He adopts us as his sons and his daughters. And he makes us one of his own. And if you made that decision today, Scripture tells us that the angels in heaven are rejoicing over your life. So I want you to know this morning that if you'd like to, you can come forward and pray. Uh, some of our altar team would love to share with you even more of what it means to follow Jesus and just pray over your life. But maybe you're here today, this morning, and you would say, Dan, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'd call myself a follower of Jesus Christ, but I'm still finding myself failing in so many ways in my walk with Jesus. Friend, I want you to know once again this morning that Jesus is pursuing you. Jesus is pursuing you. He always has been. It's no different today than it was on your first day following him. And perhaps today is a day to once again, just like Peter jumped out of that boat and swam straight to Jesus, maybe it's a day for you to run towards Jesus, not away from him. He's waiting for you. You're already forgiven. You're already loved. Can you allow the one who is full of grace and truth to meet you, to heal you, and to redeem you? Heavenly Father, this today, we thank you we thank you for the work of Jesus in our lives. And God, as I prayed earlier, it's, it's my prayer, Lord, that we would somehow, once again, get a glimpse of the face of Jesus. That we would understand how much it is that you love us. How much it is that you are pursuing us. How much it is that you want to do a healing, whole work in our hearts. And God, that you have the power to redeem even the worst moments of our lives for your glory. And so Lord, today, as we close this service in worship, God, I pray that our hearts would once again turn towards you and understand that you are there waiting to embrace us because you love us so very much. We love you too. In Jesus' name.